0: Welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast in which we take a look at what is making headlines in the world of NHS IT. I'm your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm senior reporter here at Digital Health. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Digital Health Unplugged. In this episode, we're going international. As I'm sure some of our listeners will know, Digital Health Rewired was held virtually from March 15 to 19, with an incredible lineup of keynote speakers and panel discussions, including an appearance from the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock. And we were also lucky enough to hear from some of our health informatics colleagues all the way from New Zealand who were there to tell us about their response to COVID and what's coming up for health IT on that side of the globe. So we decided we would share their wisdom with you on this episode of Digital Health Unplugged. You'll hear from Shane Hunter, the Deputy Director General of Data and Digital at the Ministry of Health in New Zealand, Ruth Large, Deputy Chair of the New Zealand Telehealth Forum, and Nigel Miller, Chief Medical Officer for the Southern District Health Board. Here's what they had to say.
1: Good evening uh, to those here in New Zealand, and good morning to those people over in the UK. And thank you for getting up very early although I must admit I was in at 6 o'clock this morning. Things are pretty full on at the moment with the vaccine programme. So, um, yeah, so an early start for me and an early start for you. Um, Yeah, uh, the title of this is The Legacy of COVID-19. I describe, you know, COVID-19 as a bit of a curse and a blessing. Uh, It's been a curse for many nations around the world, and New Zealand's been very fortunate not to be cursed in terms of um, the public health issues, I guess, uh, and mortality. But we certainly have been very busy here in New Zealand. The blessing is that it's actually uh, given us a bunch of money that we've probably for many years uh, fought to get and struggled to get or have gotten bits of money but not quite to the extent that we managed to this year. And so I thought I'd talk a bit about what what actually we've been able to achieve as a result of, um, of COVID. So I will just move through my slides. Um, the first slide here, I guess, was um, very early on um, we did a couple of things one was we went to cabinet and we got agreement to some principles that were really designed to give us the opportunity to get on and make decisions really quickly um, and not have to go back to cabinet or in some cases even at an executive level it was essentially a case of empowering the team to get on and do the right things so as you can see on this slide we agreed to set of cabinet principles uh the other the other um the other thing that i raised with my team was uh, essentially a few things one is We're going to get hit with a lot of requests for people uh, to be able to demonstrate to us their technology or sell us their technology, or even come and give us their technology. Um, We need to make a call around whether we should do it or not, and if we should do it, when we should do it, because in the early days of of the pandemic, we really had to get ourselves into a space where we were clear about what the problems were, which I'll come back to. Um, The second thing was, what I what I wanted to be sure of was that that we came out of this having moved forward. Uh, I didn't want us to be in a position where we were in the same places where we started, or in particular where we didn't uh, have an opportunity to improve the health system on an ongoing and more enduring basis. I guess our view in New Zealand was that some countries may well throw a lot of money at COVID, uh, and it will be very specific. And at the end of it, they will you know throw it away to some degree. Uh, we just didn't feel that like we had the luxury here in New Zealand to, to do that. And so we wanted to make the most of what money we had and move from good to better to best. In other words, we just needed to get started on something, just do it and start moving forward and over time improve. Uh, and one of the systems that we put in place, which I'll, I'll talk about, uh, is a really good example of that. Um, from a, From a problem point of view, I said to the team we really needed to focus on uh, defining the problem space that we needed to uh, to really address. Uh, I put one of my team into our uh, national response team, which was small to start with and growing very quickly and said, find out what we need to do. Um, so we really grouped it into what we need to do around sort of communications with the public and with government, the public service and our health workers looking at what what we need to do, is support intelligence across the system so that we can actually help the system manage effectively uh, patients um, as well as to do surveillance, as well as to understand how we would respond to spe- specific outbreaks. And then we had a massive job around coordinating and it was not just around coordinating our technology response, but it was around coordinating access to critical supplies. And that included uh, medical supplies, it included technology and it included medical technology and interestingly enough, it included getting workforce into New Zealand across the border. So there was a, a lot of work that we had to do to support that sort of response. Um, I won't go into the detail on this diagram other than to say that there are a number of systems that we uh, needed to put in place for, um, for COVID and this has evolved, I guess, from the early days of the pandemic right through to vaccinations right now And I made a list of some of the systems that we actually had to rapidly stand up. Uh, One of them was contact tracing. So we have a number of public health units in New Zealand. They do contact tracing generally for uh, communicable diseases. It was a mixture of uh, electronic systems and paper-based, depending on which uh, public health unit you were in. We needed to create some what we called surge capacity. That was the ability for us to take the load at a national level, and we needed a system to do that. That system we have iterated 21 times in 12 months. Um, We would never normally do that with a system. We would iterate once in 12 months. We probably would have taken a year to develop a business case and a year to actually iterate once, and then we would have given it to you and it would have missed the mark and you might have got version two if we had the money to carry on. Uh, That system's gone, as I say, through 21 iterations and has now gone to a system that's used not just as a, a tool for national surge capacity, but as a tool that is used by those public health units across the country. So, uh, And that is something that we can extend uh, to other forms of communicable disease where we need to do contact tracing. So we've got a base platform to grow on. The second thing was border management and workforce testing. So we essentially never had a border in New Zealand that had to cope with uh, getting people in registered into a a facility or in the early days... self-isolated and being followed up, but eventually all people into a managed isolation facility and bring together our border workforce uh, with our health workforce, with our customs and other you know, aviation workforce to, to ensure that we, we had a joined up view of who was coming into New Zealand, when they were coming to into New Zealand, that they'd arrived in New Zealand and that they were into a facility and we knew where they were and we were doing the health uh screening health checks that we need to do and managing their exit from uh from the facility. So that to me was um something that we, we absolutely need to build on and the opportunity that we see will be particularly around when the borders open up again and we start having people traveling and we understand how um uh vaccination certificates are going to work then those parties will need to come together again. So uh, again another legacy. The New Zealand COVID uh tracer app as we call it which is our our app to enable people to record where they've been so our message to the public was keep a record of where you've been we have something that will make it easy Um, it's interesting of all the different technologies that got um, uh, put in front of our noses so to speak and some quite forcefully i might add uh, this is the one that's been the most enduring we have 2.7 million users of that app it's around about 75 percent of the population that we would have targeted Um, we have uh, uh, you know, considerable use of the app when there is a community outbreak. The really important thing for us is we've got 2.7 million users of a digital channel for consumers that the Ministry of Health has never had. Uh, and our opportunity to actually make that uh, 2.7 million people verified users with a digital health identity that allows them access to their information that we hold nationally and ultimately across New Zealand and to support travel across borders, et cetera, is just the most amazing opportunity from my point of view, something we've been dreaming of that we've actually been able to accelerate. So one of the legacies for us will be a consumer channel that we can actually leverage uh, as part of our overall sort of digital health strategy. Um, we had to create an app called Orfina It's a Māori word, but uh, but essentially that was for our workforce. We needed a channel to communicate with our workforce. We think that that, uh, that has uh, potential to support us in a number of areas that we want to move forward with from a, again, from a digital health point of view. We have uh, a single patient management system across all of our managed facilities in New Zealand. So we have 32 hotels in New Zealand. About 10% of our hotels are facilities. Uh, We have one single instance of a patient management system being used across those. And that's been really important in terms of understanding more about the value of fewer systems and I guess, less complexity around integration. Um, testing and results management, I wrote down. So the ability to order tests electronically uh, is something that we, we have started to roll out. It's probably, be fair to say, a bit slower than we'd like, but nonetheless, we've been trying to get electronic ordering of tests uh, as a sort of ubiquitous service across sales system for some time. We're well on the way to doing that and also to be able to communicate back to people their results And the intent is to communicate that back into the COVID tracer app. And ultimately, that becomes a vehicle for communicating with people uh, uh, generally around test results and and other sorts of communication. Data and analytics, uh, unbelievable amount of paper-based information capture, uh, manual keying of information. Now we have this platform. We have integrated uh, so much of the system together data Uh, And that is a platform for us to do sort of public health data management, intelligence, surveillance and early warning as we start to scale that out across public health more generally. So that's another legacy platform that we have in place. Uh, The the, uh, immunisation register that we're putting in place for vaccines at the moment, um, uh, COVID-19 vaccines, will become our replatformed national immunisation register for all vaccines. Our current system is old, it is literally a database, it is not a tool to support, you know, well-managed vaccination programs where you target specific cohorts, whether it basically be on an equity basis, be it on a health condition basis. So we will have a modern platform that allows us to manage much more effectively campaigns and distribution of vaccines into the future. So very exciting. And the last thing I wrote down here was sponsored data. So one of the things that we discovered really early on was that there was a lot of information and a lot of service available to people, whether it's uh, advice, whether it's mental health services and support, uh, whether it's uh, information generally. Uh, we uh, provided a uh, essentially free mobile data to people on plans who couldn't afford to use their data so that they had free access to these services. Um, that's really informed what we intend to do going into the future around digital inclusion uh, and how we address that digital divide. So again, uh, great learnings, great insights and essentially a platform for that going forward. So another legacy from, uh, from COVID that we can we can build on. Um, I wrote down here just a few learnings. So necessity is the mother of invention. Um, you do what you need to do. And, uh, and that's what we did. Um, I think it pretty much describes how we responded in the early days while we, we literally got ourselves organised to respond more effectively. Uh, the other thing I wrote down here is regions are simply lines on a map. So um, we came together as a nation. We shared data with each other where we normally wouldn't. We did things together that we normally wouldn't do. Um, and I think it proved to be that we can actually work together uh, if we really need to, and we need to 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 build on that um, that we did through, through COVID. Um, we partner with a lot of people. We can't do everything and we certainly learned what we couldn't do and what others could do. And um, and uh, the other thing we learned is how to procure at pace and that's something that we want to be able to sustain. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're dealing with a pandemic or not. You need to be mindful of security. You need to be mindful of social license and privacy. And so we've factored that into a lot of things. And I think as a result of that work and the work we did through co-design and some of the community-led Uh, work we did to get participation in some of the things we were doing. We've got frameworks that we can actually take forward, which is is great. We've also learned that when the money flows to enable, it's amazing what you can do. So the funding models to support the sort of things that we want to do in the future, uh, I guess we now understand the criticality of it. We now need to get on and uh, execute uh, a number of changes in that regard. I, wrote, I won't go into the detail of this side, but one of the things that um, I just wanted to, to point out was that but we, from a data and digital point of view, got forced into an area that we wouldn't normally get involved in that was around supply chain and understanding just how uh, much work we've got to do around systems that manage our supplies generally, but also how little we understand about the supply chain, particularly when it comes to critical supplies. You know, whether that's PPE, whether that's medicines, whether that's oxygen, whether that's clinical equipment. And so as a result of that, I think we will be uh, continuing to run certain things that we're doing now. We procure PPE, for example, nationally, and then we work with our DHBs. Um, basically, we will continue to provide that sort of service at a national level, mainly because we want to be in a position where we're much better placed for a future pandemic, which you know everyone suggests is... You know, not just around the corner, but inevitable. So another legacy from COVID-19 for us. I won't read this, just to say a whole bunch of things that we move forward as a result of um, COVID-19, most of which I've covered off. One thing I'll point out there is we now have a population that understands what a QR code is. A lot of people didn't know what a QR code was before. Uh, And we see a lot of value in QR codes in terms of people having ready access to information about, medicines about services you know there's a range of things that we can do for example we're even looking at uh, vaccination sites and how we can actually provide information and have people scanning QR codes so a lot of value in that for us as well Um, the last thing I guess i would just say is that is that we've shown the art of what's possible uh, and I think that for us uh, that will enable us to actually uh, put up different cases and get different types of funding to implement things in a very different way, because we've shown, as I said before, 21 iterations, starting and making something better, uh, but also uh, demonstrating that we can make sensible and smart uh, choices and that we do think about and do position for the future. So um, I think the art of uh, the art of possible is something that uh, that will sh- do us well, and another legacy from COVID-19. So. Uh, that's it from me. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I look forward to um, to the panel discussion as we uh, as we move forward.
2: So, uh, Tene uh thank you very much, and it's great to have that context from from Shane. And as, as Shane's alluded to, you know, there's there's five million of us in in New Zealand, um, and uh, you, you know, we're all kind of like to refer to ourselves as having only one degree of separation. Um, and in fact, that was uh, never more true than this morning when I started a new job. And uh, along comes the doctor and says to me, oh, you're from the Wakato And I said, oh, yes. And he says, well, you will know my classmate. And indeed I did. So, you know, uh, and, and it's funny, Becky's laughing, but it's, you, you know, it's funny, isn't it? We're, we're such a small place and it's very easy to pick the phone up and call a friend. And we do it all the time, up and down the breadth of the country. Um, So what I'm going to cover a little bit today is just talking about the context of the way we work um, and put a clinical spin, I guess, on what what Shane's been been talking about. And I start with this because um, all of us who are clinicians um, work in this professional bureaucracy, and we work with our um, informatician colleagues and those who are combined clinical informaticians and technologists. And gosh, we love our CIOs, and you know the our, our staff at the Ministry of Health are just fantastic, but they so don't get what's going on on the floor. They just don't get it, and they can't, and we shouldn't expect them to. So, you know, clinicians are brought up to be patient advocates. We use this tech all the time, and um, this is the sort of background that we bring. So this this we pinched this from um, uh, Heiser. Um, the clinical health informatics sweet spot. And that's where, you know, the the, uh, ecosystem and clinical expertise and information and information communications technology meet this this, nice little sweet spot. So this is where I talk about what we've done in New Zealand, which, to be honest, was really something born out of frustration. And um, I'm sorry, I'm talking a bit fast. It's a jolly Kiwi accent too. But um, you'll see that um, this was a clinical group based in New Zealand um, and we're we must be about two years old, so pre-COVID, um, multidisciplinary, and this is important, it's not just doctors, it's not just nurses, it's not just allied health professionals, but these are a group of people in lots of different places up and down the country who said, we need a voice. We've had so many of these national things done to us, or we've had 20 district health boards all using different systems that don't talk to each other. And it's just enough. We need to to lobby a bit. So this is how this group sort of got born um, and then became more formalised by recognising a gap. And you'll see this slide just outlines how many members we've got and where they're all from. And 434, I guess, doesn't seem very much given the, the context of 5 million people and now we've got 16,000 uh, doctors, for example. Uh, but it's, a, it's enough to actually touch almost every, every part of the country and um, every workplace in the country. So we're growing a collective voice and our ministry colleagues have been incredibly good to us, um, you, you know, and as is Health Informatics New Zealand in supporting us. And I hope that we're useful. Um, we do um, squeak a lot, um, but at least we're all squeaking in unison, which I think, um, you know, makes a difference. So look, this this slide here just reflects what's happened in our, um, for our primary care colleagues, as I move on to talk a bit about telehealth. So in the context of KILN was a quite a young organisation, one year in um, before we hit COVID and growing as as an opportunity to interface with our ministry colleagues. um, Telehealth then was sprung upon us in an effort to move as many patients as possible out of our waiting rooms in primary care. So um, you can see from here that there were more than 5,000 practices who were asked with about 24 hours notice to send 75% of their consultations um, into um, a virtual arena. Now, this is in the context of these sort of tools that we were using. You know, they're all um, fixed wall, mobile units, um, used for multidisciplinary meetings, almost all of our telehealth work, so um, provision of healthcare to patients, um, whether separated by physical space was done with um, hard-based hardware. Um, There was very little in in terms of software. Software and uh, the ability to um, store and utilize the cloud really was only a few years old and not being used that well. So this is really hard for our general practice colleagues because the majority of them, you know, they didn't have webcams. Um, Their telephone lines just fell over. Um, So the the problem was significant. So this is where the New Zealand Telehealth Leadership Group came in. So we've provided a guiding coalition. We were formed before uh, COVID um, in 2012. So uh, we've been around a little while. And we actually already knew what the barriers were. So we were able very quickly, again, within that 24-hour period to go, these are the things that we need to happen. So we worked with the, the um, College of General Practice, sorry, and um, a, a group called Health Navigator who supplied patient information to provide support for our patients and our providers in telehealth. So I guess this reflects those two different things, one of a body which was formed quite recently, a much larger clinical informatics network, and then a telehealth group that was smaller but included clinicians, technologists, uh, security experts, program managers, um, CFOs, a whole lot of people working together under the scenes to could quickly stand something up and support their colleagues. And this is actually my last uh, last slide, which just shows you what the New Zealand Telehealth Forum and the New Zealand Telehealth Leadership Group has uh, come to form over the last uh, uh, 12 months. Um, we were mostly an, a volunteer organisation with a paid program manager and the Ministry of very kindly um, now providing us with a, a bit more funding for um, our chair role and our program manager role and deputy chair. That's been absolutely vital and helped us fund a whole lot of webinars as well. And uh, if you're interested in uh, a little bit more information, you'll find us at www.telehealth.org.nz. And I'm sure there may be time to chat about that afterwards, but hopefully that's a little little nutshell rundown of uh, what we've been up to.
3: Kia ora taita, ko Hill Te Moanga, ko weti awa, ko makam. Iwi. no hao, and Nigel Miller between to Nigel Miller, Chief Medical Officer, really a geriatrician. Uh, unfortunately, a disaster junkie. Having lived through the Christchurch earthquakes as CMO, uh, this was um, more of the same. I didn't say bring it on, but I thought, well, here we go again. So let me talk about what actually some practical things from a district health board point of view. The district health board, we cover 300,000 people, everything. Aged care, residential care for old people, intensive care, the whole nine yards. So I'm going to talk about it, the, the informatics response in uh, district health boards. A bit about the National Health Index, because that's one of our treasures. Um, the fact that unifying clinical records across a, a geographical area actually is very handy. And, and something about some new systems we we got we got into quickly. You're not supposed to do in an emergency. But we did anyway. So the national national health infrastructure. You have to have roads to drive on, and, and somebody somewhere in New Zealand, the late nineteen seventies, thought everyone should have a unique number. And um, by nineteen ninety three, when I got to New Zealand, um, we had the formalised national health index, and everybody was, was numbered. Not quite everybody then, but um, the format was ABC one two three four. Um, Very simple. You can remember it. If I stagger into the emergency department and and my last last gasp is golf, golf, alpha, two, one, zero, three, they'll know it's me and all about me. And if it's a South Island, they can then click click it and get all my records. And um, it's it's as usable as that. I hear people talking clinical handover, you know, alpha, bravo, charlie, one, two, three, four, uh, and the name, but it's it's as usable as that. it's used everywhere now in health, hospital, general practice, laboratory, community pharmacy. Anybody who gets any money out of the health service, if you can't trump up with the NHI, you're not getting any. So it actually it's, it's it's ubiquitous. This I think was one of one of one of our one of our key usable things that the information we had about people was usable at any new points. So we could set up new things. We could access the system, so we we could set something up for community testing. Um, the primary care team in Wales South rigged up a, a web access system, so in the car park somewhere they can have um, uh, a laptop, you know, running through someone's cell phone, connected to the systems, able to find people in the national system and actually identify them. And, and that was, to me was critical. So in the South Island, New Zealand, um, it's the same most district health, most regions and district health boards, a bit of a theme, but in the South Island, we've got one million people, five district health boards. Um, who run three public health units, they cover across each other. Um, so we have one clinical portal for our health record, um, a lot of unified data, and that includes all the laboratory results. And that was a kind of critical thing for us. So whoever did a test, wherever it, it's in the same place. And that's accessible by all the hospital clinicians um, and by GPs, one click on their system, community pharmacists and a whole range of other people. And, and the laboratory results are, are unified across the region, and, and it's the same in, in, in the northern region, and other parts of New Zealand, they have systems, that are very similar systems. So what that meant for us is, is whenever, wherever there was a COVID test, um, irrespective of the laboratory or time of day, um, that, that would be, um, the test would be performed, it would be injected into our shared laboratory system, and available to the public health system, to the GP, um, to the hospital, and under other relevant clinicians, you know, if, if someone, you know, if I got a crazy question about what's happening somewhere, is it, is a is patient affected? I could actually get the result. So it created a unification, um, and, and people could also see testing in process, in progress. So the test had been requested. Then, so we were sending uh, tests from southern, some to Christchurch, doing some ourselves. It made no difference. You didn't have to chase anything because the results were were, were chaseable. And the laboratory, of course, could make immediate notifications on top of that. So from our point of view, this, this was great. That was based on a system run by Sysmex um, called Eclair. Um, that they put together um, some useful COVID views. Use, um, and we could we could allocate testing wherever we liked. Um, as we as we brought our new testing capacity, you now we started testing in some hospitals for, from De Novo and the rural hospitals, we could join it in quite easily through our laboratory partners. Um, and from our point of view, this, this was kind of um, game changing. Um, our testing system um, was was quite simple and straightforward. Again, same sort of basic infrastructure. Um, you could call up, like um, the bottom picture is me getting my test uh, last week, or actually a little bit earlier, the week before last, um, when I had a cold. And I just had to ring, ring a phone number, give them my magic number, which they, they didn't need to have it because they could look me up, but it saved amount a lot of time and then they gave me a choice of where I was to go and I drove in and got tested. Um, if you walked into a testing centre, we sometimes did pop-up testing, you know, we, did, we wanted to do sort of community screening, uh, people could walk in, as long as they, they were competent mentors to give us their name, date of birth, and a couple of other useful bits, you could find out who they were, connect them in, give them, the, you know, label all your, all your samples and everything, and it all happened reliably. Um, and on that, of course, then allowed national notification, all the things that Shane needed to run run the system from the center. Um, one thing I've always been told is don't do new things in emergency. Just do what you do well. But we broke all the rules in Southern. We were just on the cusp of being one of the first, I think, perhaps the first district health board to move into Microsoft Teams in 365. And we had a bit of a debate and we said, let's just do it. So we actually, after our lockdown, we said what we're going to do this and we actually implemented it and turned it on. Um, which was a bit of fun and excitement. But of course, you know, we're in an emergency, the first thing people think is I'm not dead, so it can't be worse, I'll try it, which is a different different model of adoption variety than you normally get. So we got rapid implementation, people took it up with enthusiasm. Um, so I thought it was probably, I was running this, the technical advisory group. So I ran every single part of that on Teams. Um, Apart from the beginning, the, the video wasn't regular, we used Zoom, but eventually we used the video from Teams. Um, so we did everything on it. So now I, now I have a complete record of every transaction, every meeting, all the minutes, every document we reviewed, everything we sent out, and it's all in one place, it's all sorted, um, and then and now we'll realize we should be doing this all along, um, and it's given us a huge leg up we wouldn't have got otherwise. We also used it for our, our video consultation platform, and in, in Christchurch, just up the road, they managed to link things into the patient administration system, which is which gets across that problem with tele, telehealth that you've got to work out how you book the appointments. Well, now that now we managed to join the platform to the appointment booking system, which is great. Um, I, I, I got an email on a Sunday morning um, from a surgeon. who's actually sent at three o'clock, and he had been busily over the weekend coding, a sort of coding a COVID power app, COVID screening power app using the Microsoft 365 program. Um, and so we use that for all of our front door screening at the hospitals. So if you rocked up to the hospital, they asked you, you know, have you been in contact, so have you been overseas? All the questions that we kept on changing because public health liked to change the case definition. So they could, they could change it. To begin with, before that, we, we had to send something out at three o'clock in the afternoon to guarantee it got everywhere by five to get all of our front doors changed. But now we could do it with a press of a button. Um, and it was you know available on people's phones with they joint joined to our hospital network or their iPad or the or the desktop thing, and we could we could collect the data. We didn't quite get smart enough to connect that to electronic health record, but I'm sure we could have done if the, if the whole thing had lasted a bit longer. But we ran, that ran out of steam to some extent, so we don't have to screen this heavily now. So in conclusion, long-standing infrastructure. You've got to make you've got to have a really good infrastructure to get through this. If you built the infrastructure, it's much easier. Um, integrated health records make it much easier, so you really know what's going on with people. And a single, single laboratory database—that's a really critical factor because it's all. This is what we need. We need unified data, and it's our data. We own it, and then and then you have a market for applications. And the other thing I learned is um, try some new stuff in emergency. It's actually okay.
0: What a great discussion from Shane, Ruth, and Nigel there. I hope you enjoyed hearing the experience of our New Zealand friends as much as I did. And if you do want to know more about what went on at Rewired or to rewatch some of our sessions on demand, you can do so at digitalhealthrewired.com. And that draws this podcast episode to an end. Don't forget that Digital Health Unplugged is published fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes and all the other podcast platforms. So please do give us a follow to keep up to date with everything that we're doing. And of course, if you've got a podcast suggestion, we're really keen to hear from you. You can get in touch on podcast at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this episode. We'll catch you in two weeks time. You've been listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more episodes or to keep up to date with what Digital Health Unplugged is doing, you can give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast channel. If you want to know more about digital health, our news and events, you can head on over to digitalhealth.net.